of course, tonight we are talking about the press conference. Some of you might have just watched an announcement um, on when we will be removing all restrictions. A slight delay. And we have some other big stories for you tonight. We're going to do a review of the launch of GB News. Don't worry, we're not going to make a habit being outraged at everything they say because that potentially is part of their strategy. But I think it is worth um, us at least uh, talking about this, given this is um, a, a new entrant to the media. This afternoon, we awaited the crucial announcement on whether or not England would be able to abandon all legally enforceable COVID restrictions on the 21st of June. We weren't expecting good news. Boris Johnson set the scene as follows. Vaccination greatly reduces transmission and two doses provide a very high degree of protection against serious illness and death. But there are still millions of younger adults who have not been vaccinated and sadly a proportion of the elderly and vulnerable may still succumb even if they have had two jabs. And that's why we're so concerned by the Delta variant that is now spreading faster than the third wave that was predicted in the February roadmap. We're currently on a trajectory which is worse than that which was predicted in the February roadmap. Obviously, if we'd stuck to the February roadmap, we would be removing all restrictions on the 21st of June. In terms of the practical consequences of the Delta variant and the, the fact that we have more cases than had been predicted, here's what Boris Johnson had to say about the planned reopening on the 21st of June. Today, I cannot say that we have met all our four tests for proceeding with step four on June the 21st. I think it is sensible to wait just a little longer. By Monday the 19th of July, we will aim to have double jabbed around two thirds of the adult population, including everyone over 50, all the vulnerable, all frontline health and care workers, and everyone over 40 who received their first dose by mid-May. And to do this, we will now accelerate the second jabs for those over 40, just as we did for the vulnerable groups, so they get the maximum protection as fast as possible. And we will bring forward our target to give every adult in this country a first dose by the 19th of July. That is including young people over the age of 18, with 23 and 24 year olds invited to book jabs from tomorrow. So we reduce the risk of transmission among the groups that mix the most. So that all makes quite a lot of sense. We didn't pass the four tests. So there is a four week delay before nightclubs and the like reopen. That will happen on the 19th of July. And that will be after everyone has had their first dose of the vaccine, or at least has had the chance to have their first dose of the vaccine. And all over 50s have had a double dose. The good news there, if you are 23 or 24, is that from tomorrow, you'll be able to book your vaccine. Historically, you can normally book it as soon as the announcement happens. So maybe if you are in those age groups, check out the website as soon as we go off air. Now, despite the delay from removing most of the remaining restrictions, there were some exceptions. We will hold off step four openings until July the 29th, except for weddings that can still go ahead with uh, more than 30 guests, provided, pr provided social distancing remains in place. And the same will apply to Wicks. And we will continue 
to pilot events such as Euro 2020 and some theatrical performances. We will monitor the position every day, and if after two weeks we have concluded that the risk has diminished, then we reserve the possibility of proceeding to step four and a full opening sooner. So weddings and wakes are back on. I mean, they were allowed anyway, but the, the limit is gone. The limit will now be, instead of the hard and fast 30 people, it will be however many people the venue can accommodate while respecting social distancing. So it will still be, um, I suppose, fewer people will be able to come to your wedding than they would have done otherwise. Now, in the second clip, we showed you the justification for this delay was that we hadn't passed the four tests which were set that we would have had to have passed to, to remove all of these restrictions. Now, I imagine you've forgotten what those are. I certainly had. Handily, Chris Whitty gave us a slideshow reminding us of the four tests and which of them we passed. So the first test was on vaccines. As you can see from this, we all know this, the vaccination program is going very well and is on track according to the targets which were set um, back in February. Um, as you can see from this graph, 42 million people have now had their first dose. Um, that is almost 80% of the adult population. 30 million people have had both doses. That's 57% of the adult population. So very impressive there. Um, of course, if you include children, you know, it's not 80% of the population who've had their first dose. So that's why we, we don't seem to be close to herd immunity. The next text was on the effectiveness of vaccines. So not just how many of them we'd got into people's arms, but whether they were working. On this one, we also past. Um, so this is showing the effectiveness of the vaccines against the Delta variant, which we know is now dominant. So after one dose, when it comes to symptomatic disease, the vaccines are 26 to 40 percent effective. That one might not sound huge, but this is just for symptomatic disease. Remember, after two doses, it gets much more effective. So that's 76 to 84 percent effective. You can see why they want to wait for more people to have those second doses. This is actually what's most important though, the estimated reduction in hospitalizations from the Delta variant after one and two doses of the vaccine. Now this is much more impressive. After one dose, there is a 57 to 85% reduction in your likelihood of going to hospital if you catch COVID-19. And after two doses, an 85 to 98% reduction. Again, Pretty obvious why they want to put off any more loosening until at least all of the over 50s have been double vaccinated. One last slide here to sort of prove to you if you had any doubt that the vaccines were working against the Delta variant, you can see the age distribution of people going into hospital. So back in January when no one was, or almost no one was vaccinated, the vast majority of people going into hospital were 65 and over. Now, and when all the 65 and overs have been vaccinated, or almost all of them, we are talking 97, 98%, that is a much smaller amount of, or a much smaller number of people going into hospital. It's also the case that whilst there will be some people who are double vaccinated going into hospital, you're more likely to survive if you've been double vaccinated. So we've got two tests, vaccines in arms and the vaccines working, both passed with flying colours. It's test-free where we have the problem. That's that infection rates don't lead to pressure on hospitals. And this is where 
the Delta variant has really kicked us in the teeth because it has meant a massive increase in cases and exponential growth. This chart shows you that in the Northwest, there's been a 64% increase in COVID cases since last week in England as a whole, a 64% increase. So the same actually in both places. But as you can see, the Northwest, it's starting from a much higher point. And this is being reflected in hospitalizations. So there is a 61% increase in hospitalizations in the Northwest since last week and a 50% increase in England as a whole. So there are more people going into hospital as there is an increase in cases. Now, as you saw from the previous chart, these are younger people. They're probably not going to end up in ICU to the same, you know, in the same rates that they did back in January when this was older people, but that's still a really big problem. Finally, the fourth test was the assessment of risks when it comes to variants of concern. Now, it's quite obvious to everyone what's going on here. We did have cases which were going steadily down. We were in a really, really good place. And the Delta variant comes along because of Boris Johnson's shitty border policy. And suddenly we have a new significant surge in COVID-19. You might be thinking, why a four-week delay? Why should we trust that this is only going to be four weeks and there won't be another variant that we import or something else that occurs on our shores, as happened with the Kent variant? Will this not happen again? Will we not get bad news that says, oh, sorry, our projections were wrong in June. Something else has come up and you're going to have to have another month away from the nightclubs. Now, Patrick Valance explained why that's hopefully not the case. The four-week delay should reduce the peak, whatever it would be, by something between 30 and 50%. So that's the sort of gain you get from the four weeks. And actually, it's not very obvious that you get much more gain from going on longer than that mm. at the moment. So it looks like quite a good length of time. You get the three advantages, over 18 single dose, many more people double dosed, and close to the school holidays with the effect that that has to also take the pressure off. And that should, between them, significantly reduce the peak. But there will be an increase in numbers and there will be an increase in hospitalizations because that's what happens when there's more mixing. A very sensible argument. You know, after that four weeks, we'll have many more people vaccinated. Even if we do get a surge, then the fact that all over 50s or all over 50s who've been offered a double vaccinated and everyone has one vaccine means that this will not translate into hospitalizations to the same degree that it will now. A lot can be achieved in those four weeks. Boris Johnson was also quite keen to suggest this is a hard and fast deadline, which again kind of makes sense because you could say, well, imagine if a variant comes along which is more vaccine resistant than the current ones, we'd still be in a difficult place. Their argument then is kind of like, well, at that point, as it doesn't seem like there's anything we can do in the intervening four weeks, we're just going to have to take the hit. Ash Sarkar, how disappointed are you about this delay? Are you having to rip up tickets to Wild Nights Out? Well, look, I think the reason for the delay and doing it, it's perfectly reasonable, right? You've got a vaccine rollout, which can be uh, accelerated over the next four weeks. It's something which will guarantee that there'll be much fewer hospitalizations and it will contain uh, the infection rate in a context where we have already to quite a large degree unlocked. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to happen. It's not like cancelling Christmas, which really did bum me out. But one of the things I think you've got to bear in mind is that this is a reasonable response 
to a problem of the government's own making. So we've, you know, been talking a lot in the last few weeks about the failure to get India onto the red list soon enough. Uh, the fact that, you know, you had arrivals coming through Heathrow, absolutely. Uh, no testing, no mandatory quarantine for many of them. Um, and you also had a problem of local responsiveness. So even if you do hold the view, and this is where I disagree with some people on the left, that it's possible to maintain uh, a relatively open board strategy in the context of a pandemic. I, I don't think that that's necessarily possible. Um, but even if you hold that view, you can then look at what was going on locally, where the variant was identified fairly early on. And what was the government response? Update the advice, but in a very light touch, softly, softly way. So you didn't actually have anything um, being implemented by the government to catch the outbreaks when they were still, you know, relatively containable and stop them in their tracks. And that's how we ended up with the Delta variant being the most dominant strain we've got in the country today. It's all because of government inaction, real inertia. And I think that unwillingness to make tough decisions at the time where making a tough decision would be most effective. I also don't have much time for people who say, oh, we can't have border controls even in a pandemic. People were absolutely right to stop travel from the UK when we had the Kent variant. Um, and people were right to stop travel from India when the Delta variant was running wild, right? It's no judgment on Kent, it's no judgment on India, but it is I think it is good that we're now calling it the, the, the Delta variant. Anyway, that issue of this being um, a problem of Boris Johnson's making because of his um, very weak travel policy, in particular because of the time it took to put India on the red list when Boris Johnson just so happened to have a, a trip planned to India to sort out a trade deal, all very suspicious. I was expecting that to be put to him at today's press conference by one of the journalists present. It wasn't. Um, make of that what you will. It was, though, brought up by Keir Starmer this morning on LBC. June 21st was supposed to be Freedom Day. And why are we not going to hit it? And it looks like we're not. Answer, because of the government's pathetic borders policy. Absolutely pathetic. They didn't introduce hotel quarantine until, I think, February of this year, and then only 1%. Then we went through this ridiculous red, amber, green, where loads of countries were moved to the amber list. On the beginning of that, they told, well, that means you can sort of go on holiday there. Then it's suddenly, no, 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 it doesn't. It's only if it's absolutely essential. Then you get another member of the government popping up saying, well, I think holidays are essential. Nobody knows where they are on that. And then the inexplicable delay from the 9th, I think, to the 23rd of April, putting India onto the red list um, with lots of people coming in. And then on top of all of that, mixing at, I think, Heathrow Airport of people on red lists and green lists. Pathetic. You know, I've been incredibly critical of Keir Starmer throughout this pandemic. I still am in, in, in many areas. But this is one where actually they can't call him Captain Hindsight because Labour at the start of the year did call for a good border policy, which was mandatory hotel quarantine for everyone who's arriving because we can't guess where the new variants are going to come from. Every country that's introduced that has had a very effective COVID response. Every country that hasn't has had a pretty ineffective COVID response. Labour were saying that at the time. Now they've essentially been proven right on this particular issue. I mean, it will probably be quite difficult for them to make political hay out of it. There's something about COVID where people don't like to look backwards. But it's not the end of the world that this delay is happening for four weeks. For some people, it might be, though. If you run a nightclub, it probably feels a little bit like the, the end of the world. But do you think this is an example where Labour were right, the Tories were wrong, and that might be helpful for them? Do I think this is an example of Labour were right, the Tories were wrong? Yes. Is this, is this going to be helpful to Keir Starmer? I think no. Because... 
in this segment on LBC, he was quite strong. In every other aspect, when he's sort of asked to, you know, explain his own, you know, lack of performance or why the Tories are doing well, he either decides it's time to punch Labour in the face. So repeating the same mm. stuff about unity, infighting, we've got to rebuild trust, which is kind of the Keith Starmer flagellation roadshow, going around the country with this hangdog expression going, I know we're shit, you know we're shit, but please vote for me anyway, right? It's not particularly inspiring. Or you've got the bit where he's doing the government's job for them and heaping praise on the vaccine rollout. So when you sandwich what I think is a very good critique and a fair critique in between this kind of, I don't know even why I'm the leader of a political party. The other lot are so good <laughs> and I'm just so rubbish. Then I don't think you necessarily end up with something uh, which is going to benefit Keir Starmer in a polling sense. And as you said, I think there are other challenges there. People don't really like to look backwards and, you know, haul the government over coals for mistakes that it's made. But that's also because you don't have an effective uh, mouthpiece for that point of view. You don't have someone who's doing that consistently in a powerful and convincing way. The best you've got is Keir Starmer and he's just a bit... Mm. That's very well put. It's that it should have been an answer to other questions as well, because essentially he was asked by Nick Ferrara. I watched the whole half hour this morning. He's asked, what do you make of this extension? And the answer is correct. You know, it's necessary, but it's only necessary because Boris Johnson fucked up when it came to, to borders three months ago. Then later in the interview, he's asked, why aren't you doing very well? And what you should say at that point, you should say, because people are letting Boris Johnson off the hook. This is a guy mm. who has just meant that we were supposed to have all of these freedoms, which are really, really valuable, you know, or next week. And now they're going to have to be four weeks later. If you own a nightclub, if you own a bar, this is really, really serious stuff. And this is all because of a personal mistake he made. And no one's talking about it. No one in the mainstream media is talking about it. So that's why I'm behind, right? Mm. And then you're like, oh, now I actually remember what he said, right? It, 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 that That's how you make Boris Johnson be accountable because I, I, there is something frustrating about this. I mean, anyone who watches this show knows I don't just play party politics when it comes to COVID. I'm very interested in it in, in its own right and the, and the way that it affects all of our lives. But one thing that has been very frustrating is that Boris Johnson makes fuck up after fuck up after fuck up and, and none of it sticks. For me, it's that third wave when tens of thousands of people died. It was all down to his personality, all down to decisions he made or, or we could say didn't make, right? That, that's all on his shoulders. And for him to get away with that, there is something kind of morally offensive about that. And so I, I do feel like for the sake of democracy, when these fuck-ups happen because of the mistakes, the errors, the the complete incompetence and like moral depravity, I suppose, in many ways, I, I don't think that's overstating it, of Boris Johnson, for him to then get away with it, I do find that uncomfortable. I agree with you, but I also think it's a bigger problem for Keir Starmer than simply coronavirus. Because when he became leader of the Labour Party, you had, you know, the likes of Laura Koonsberg hailing him as the return of real opposition. But one of the first things that he did is completely hamstring himself by saying, I'm not going to play politics for certain issues. You know, it's going to be constructive opposition. We're going to you agree with the government when they do the right thing. And what he did was essentially make a rod for his own back and hand over an attack line, which is when he does start to oppose and he does start to criticize and he does start taking um, a line which is separate from the government, is that he gets his own words thrown back in his face of, well, isn't this playing politics? Isn't this, you know, non-constructive opposition? And the problem is, is that that's left him kind of with nothing to do. He's in this weird halfway space where he can 
not really do anything in full throat or with full commitment. So he's got this like very sharp critique, but it's against a backdrop of really uninspiring, flat uh, and unconvincing political lines. And he also can't fully put himself behind the government because the government have been responsible for the deaths of, you know, tens of thousands of people unnecessarily. So I kind of think if you want to talk about, you know, political problems of your own making you can kind of draw a similarity in boris johnson having to you know defer freedom day because of his own errors of judgment and keir starmer being in this kind of horrible purgatory um and that's because he set the terms for his own opposition which had been defined by people who've got no interest in seeing an effective opposition at all Mm. It's not just Starmer here letting Boris Johnson off the hook. As I say, I've already mentioned it, but I think it is worth emphasising that no one in that press briefing even mentioned the fact that this four-week delay is because of decisions Boris Johnson made, right? So I would have hoped one of them would have said, you know, will will you apologise to the nightclub owners who are going to have to close for the next four weeks because ultimately this is only happening because you didn't have a proper border control policy, which, by the way, the opposition and a bunch of your scientists told you you should have. You know, I, I, I accept that these press conferences shouldn't just be about, you know, asking the government about what they got wrong. The public need to be informed about what's happening next. Absolutely correct. But for there not to be one question like that, I do find questionable. Next story. Sunday night was the launch of GB News. Now, this is the hedge fund-backed right-wing news outlet fronted by Andrew Neil, which intends to stoke a culture war and drag the UK's centre ground ever further to the right. The channel launched with a monologue from Andrew Neil. He railed against cancel culture and metropolitan mindsets, but also reassured viewers that despite having an agenda, GB News would not be purveyors of fake news. We'll be more concerned with what will raise prosperity and create jobs in our left-behind towns than what some overprivileged and ahistoric students decide to hang on their walls in Oxford. Social mobility and a fair chance in life for all will matter more to us than the wasteland to nowhere that is identity politics. And if you want fake news, lies, disinformation, distortion of the facts, conspiracy theories, then GB News is not for you. Because in everything we do, we will be guided by the highest journalistic standards written into the contracts of everybody who works here at GB News. Robust, even disputatious debate, of course. A much wider variety of voices than you currently hear in broadcasting, certainly. But never the promotion of matters we know to be untrue or the pushing of facts that are convenient to a viewpoint that may be convenient, but not properly checked. Now, for anyone who watched any of GB News last night, I don't recommend it, by the way. It is laughable, he suggested. We're going to talk about prosperity, not identity, because there's been almost a constant bar underneath whoever is hosting it saying players taking the knee is okay to boo. So they've actually only talked about... um, I I mean, I don't think that's only just identity politics. I think that's anti-racist politics. But they're they're taking offence at it. They're saying this is disrespect. So the idea they don't care about that, they're there to talk about prosperity, clearly a lie, frankly. What I do want to focus on, though, because I think this is more politically significant, is what Andrew Neil was saying there about fake news. He's essentially saying, look, we we might be right wing, but we're not going to be a UK version of Fox News because we're not going to spread conspiracy theories. We're not going to spread an anti-science agenda where we, you know, say all the experts are wrong. 
don't believe that COVID's a big deal, for example, that's clearly the, the main one at the moment that's coming from Fox News. You'd also associate climate denial, that kind of thing, um, with, with a Fox News type outlet. That was reassuring to hear the problem. The argument fell apart as soon as Andrew Neil's first show ended because he was replaced by Dan Wooten. He has a nightly show on at 9pm. He was recently hired from Talk Radio and The Sun and in his opening monologue, he railed against science and spread unevidenced conspiracy theories. Tragically, the doomsday scientists and public health officials have taken control. They're addicted to the power and the government has satisfied its 15-month-long never-ending scare campaign has suitably terrified the public into supporting lockdowns. But if we don't fight back against this madness, some of the damage, I think, will be irreversible. Tomorrow night, in an address to the nation, Boris will likely try and tell us it will be just another four weeks. As if there'll be the next variant, the next scare story, more intense lobbying by paranoid public health officials repeated ad nauseum by the BBC and ITV, unchallenged. Why don't they report on the good news? The fact 95% of over 65s, the vulnerable age group, now have COVID antibodies. The fact that while infections, yes, are fast rising, deaths are not. Because the vaccine program has worked. Why not look to Florida or Texas or Sweden where a different approach that doesn't keep large parts of the economy locked down has worked? Do you remember what Andrew Neil said? I showed you it quite recently. He said, look, we're not going to misrepresent the facts. We are going to hold ourselves to very high journalistic standards. The next person on the show who's their star evening host talking about doomsday scientists, paranoid public health officials. He's saying they've all taken control and they're addicted to power. This is kind of classic conspiracy theory territory. What's the evidence? that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance are addicted to power and obsessed with lockdowns. If you hear them talking, that doesn't seem to be what they suggest. In fact, they say, you know, we can't have zero COVID. We're going to have to accept this being an endemic disease, but we're going to need this extra four weeks just to vaccinate a few more people. They aren't really extremists. By the way, I'm not I'm not trying to say anyone in favour of the zero COVID strategy is an extremist. I mean, that's also a very legitimate position to take. What has he said that's categorically wrong there, other than just being you know, quite distasteful? He says, Sweden worked. He says, we, we shouldn't have lockdowns. Sweden worked. Now, what he didn't mention is Sweden has a far worse death toll than its neighbours. So Sweden has three times as many deaths per capita as Denmark and 10 times as many as Finland and Norway, and it also had a bigger economic hit. So its policy failed on all terms, which is why they ultimately abandoned it. That was someone picking, I mean, it's, it's almost a, it's too kind on him to say he's picking out or you know, cherry picking evidence to suit his agenda. There was no evidence there. He's just essentially flat out lying. Let's take a look at one more example of anti-science nonsense from Dan Wooten. Well, I completely disagree with this whole conversation about border closures, because actually, Benjamin, if you follow international news closely, you'll also know that Melbourne, Australia has been plunged into its fourth lockdown recently. The border policies in Australia are so draconian that the government actually broke international law, in my opinion, by shutting the border from India to Australia to its own citizens. Guess what? The Indian variant still got in. Border closures do not stop the variant ar variants arrive ar arriving. Viruses travel. That was more explicitly what Andrew Neil was talking about. You're, you're cherry picking evidence which is not actually 
suitable to furnish your argument, but you're presenting it as if it does. There wasn't much pushback there, by the way. Now, what was his argument? Border controls don't work to stop variants because Australia had very tough border controls and the Delta variant still arrived. Kind of true on one level. There were examples of the Delta variant in Australia. Why it's a completely misleading essentially that that argument was a lie because Australia's seven-day average for daily new cases is 10. The corresponding figure in the UK is 6,689. So the idea you can say, oh, border controls don't work because they had 10 cases. Well, wait a minute. What about the countries without border controls? 7,000 cases, right? And there wasn't a, an epidemiologist on there to correct Dan Wooten. You know, it was just him able to put forward that completely misleading nonsense. And Ash, I want to bring you in at this point, because the UK has sort of avoided this anti-science nonsense, which we sort of know from Fox News when we see those clips that we say, I can't believe they have this in America, where they're just railing against climate science and COVID science. This seems to be what what GB News is trying to, to bring to Britain, doesn't it? Here's the interesting thing about Boomer TV, is that it really was riding on the prestige that comes with Andrew Neil because of him being such an institution at the BBC. I will give Andrew Neil his full due. When it comes to those live interviews, which is essentially like performing a televised vivisection of a politician, nobody is better at doing them. I've really never seen anyone as um, as uh, rigorous and as aggressive as Andrew Neil really in a way which didn't involve shouting, right? He's a, he's a very formidable journalist in that way. But when it comes to you know, the rest of his journalistic career, when you take that step back, actually, he does have a history of facilitating a very, you know, anti-science and, you know, quack science perspective. So when he was at the Sunday Times as editor, you had multiple articles denying the connection between HIV and AIDS. So it's not really, I think, anything new for him to be kind of comfortable in a journalistic space, which also has these, you know, completely uh, discredited quack points of view. When it comes to, you know, Dan Wooten, He's not a serious journalist, I would say, in my opinion. He's a showbiz journalist who, a bit like Piers Morgan, has identified that there's a space for him in his career by stepping out of someone who merely covers celebrity and takes center stage as a contrarian himself. He's very much, I think, following in the footsteps of that kind of model for his own career. You know, he's also worked out that, hang on, there's a space in the broadcasting market here in the UK for something which is a bit more like Fox News. And that's not just in terms of this, you know, anti-science point of view. It's also the manner of delivery. So I think that we would be hypocrites here if we said that, you know, partisan news has got no place in the public domain. I think it's got a place. Um, but the way in which it's being done here is both hyper uh biased and also not reliable, right? The abuse of those statistics really should be considered a matter for the Geneva Convention. Um, but the manner of delivering that soliloquizing, very ranty, yelling at the camera, yelling at his guests, um, that's a very Fox News way to do it. So the way in which I see Dan Wooten's own role in this is completely self-serving, cynical, and calculated. The question remains is how successful is this going to be? I think maybe something which has sort of worried some of these figures uh, on the right, and perhaps also is one of the reasons why GB News has been 
sped into production, as it were, is because when it comes to cultural outlook and, and voting behavior, they very much do have a grip on that older cohort of voters. But when it comes to, you know, lockdown skepticism, they don't. You look at the polling, all the voters are perfectly comfortable with the idea of a four-week lockdown. There's only slightly more opposition um, amongst younger voters. So in terms of who is this channel serving, there are some real, I think, fault lines here. And I'm not necessarily sure if they'll be able to hold together. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted last night and I, I think Dan Wharton is their worst hire because I do want to push back slightly. I mean, you sort of compared him to Piers Morgan. He might like to be Piers Morgan, but he's not smart. I've I've spent quite a long time in studios with Dan Wharton and he's like, he's not an intelligent person. If anyone gives any pushback in an interview, he's completely lost and just has to start shouting because he can't think on his feet. He's someone, to me, I think he's potentially got a good contact book. Maybe he's got some dirt on people. I don't know. I don't know how he manages to get sort of celebrity scoops. But this move to become a political pundit, I just don't <laughs> see it working. I don't think anyone in, in Britain really looks at that and thinks, I really relate to this guy. He's not like a Tucker Carlson, essentially. He's in like the Tucker Carlson slot where it's supposed to be, I speak for the ordinary person, but you just look, who is this idiot and why is he on my TV? You're right. No, he's not He's not a smart guy. He's emulating the broadcasting style of others, but I don't think he necessarily has, you know, even the now sort of strategy behind it. I had my own run-in with him. I've had a few. But one was on his talk radio show where they decided to jump me with a clip which had been taken out of context from a Navarro video and had gone viral on far-right Twitter, where I was making fun of a way in which a sociologist called Ted Cantor was measuring residential segregation. And I made an offhand comment of, oh, look, lads, we're winning. And it was taking the piss out of the research, not an endorsement of it. And so Dan Wooden decided to try and ambush me with it. And then when I said, Dan, that's a joke, he didn't know what to do. So he just started yelling at me. And he was like, but we shouldn't joke about these things. And I was like, I thought you believed in free speech. And he was like, oh, well, <laughs> nevertheless. Like, it was just, it's just, he, he really wasn't prepared for, um, the possibility that I wasn't saying what he was saying I was saying. So he was like, I'm just going to yell and hope nobody notices. And luckily for him, the Daily Express was ready to write an article in his favor. So I don't know, maybe it's him pulling the strings or, um, you know, there's mates at the Express. Or, or maybe that's just another bunch of idiots in the right-wing media. I don't know. Let's look at who funds this monstrosity. Solomon Hughes had a great piece about this in Tribune magazine, the kind of media it is worth supporting. He writes, £20 million of their funding has come from the Discovery Channel. Um, so that's supposed to be expected for, for, a, for a TV outfit that a production company is funding them. The other funders are more interesting, though. One such major player in GB News is Legatum, an international investment firm based in the Dubai International Financial Center, a tax-free zone in the United Arab Emirates. Legatum is currently GB News' co-lead investor, putting a reported £20 million into its initial £6 million fundraising. The firm's founder and chairman is Christopher Chandler, who made his fortune investing in emerging markets in times of political and economic uncertainty, including the stripping and privatizing of Russia's assets in the 1990s. A classic free market, neoliberal, filthy rich. Christopher Chandler, by the way, is worth £1.7 billion. Like Dan Wooten is from New Zealand. I wonder if there's a connection there. Legatum, a little bit more about them. They fund the Mayfair-based Legatum Institute, which promoted a hard Brexit on the grounds it would allow economic deregulation. So we can, we can see what they're 
about. Another 10 million comes from Paul Marshall. Marshall runs the Marshall Waste Hedge Fund. Um, he's worth 600 million, £630 million pounds and was alleged to have increased that wealth by um, betting against companies hit by the pandemic. On his politics, Solomon Hughes writes, Marshall is not a straightforward Tory. He backed the Liberal Democrats for decades, using his money to move them rightwards. Marshall even funded and edited the Orange Book, a 2004 collection of essays that promoted Nick Clegg's more free market Lib Dems over the party's left-leaning wing. Marshall's Orange Book aimed to shift the Lib Dems away from what is called soggy socialism and corporatism, or from what it called soggy socialism and corporatism, towards harder, more neoliberal political lines. This included arguing that the NHS was a second-rate centralised state monopoly service and calling for the privatisation of hospitals, prisons and royal mail. Now, the Orange Book MP, so part of that movement, they were the they were the guys around Nick Clegg who really pushed to go into that coalition with the Tories, so essentially responsible for austerity. Marshall later left the Lib Dems over Brexit. He then became a Tory donor and helped fund both of Michael Gove's leadership campaigns. So we can see there, hedge fund manager, the Legatum, investment company, both of them super mega rich, really, really in favor of Brexit, global financial deregulation. They basically want to slash rights, but that's not what you're going to lead with on your show. So you have to talk up these cultural issues. Or for some reason, I think this is probably going to backfire on them. They're trying to hide this, this drive towards deregulation via railing against lockdowns. Ash, what do you think we should read into the people who are paying for this? I mean, look, this is a class of, you know, vulture capitalists who benefit an awful lot from the degradation of the public sphere. So I don't think they look at one of Dan Wooten's idiotic monologues and think, oh, God, this is a bit embarrassing for us. What they see is a contribution to, you know, the kind of poisoning of the well of our public sphere, the place where all of us get our information and take part in a conversation. And that's what shapes our politics. They see that, you know, essentially a swimming pool being shattered and they go, actually, that's a really great and useful context for us. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we have had such a lurch to the authoritarian right in this country is because that process of diminishing the public arena has been going on for decades, really. And I think that that's part of what has made this country so amenable to, you know, this kind of right wing smash and grab that we've seen since, you know, 2016. And I think what this also perhaps shows us is that Brexit, but no matter where you stand on the EU issue, by the way, whether you thought, you know, we should leave, whether we should have stayed, whether we could have reformed or whatever, is that Brexit as it actually exists, is not a discrete political event, all right? So it's, on the one hand, an expression, I think, of um, a, a kind of weaponized, homeowning, uh, boomer class of voters who have really benefited from both the most generous welfare state in history and then the selling off of that welfare state um, and the financialization of the economy. And weaponizing that class, I think, of in relative terms, in statistical terms, um, you know, very well off voters into 
this really powerful sense of aggrievement and you can kind of point them in different directions one being the eu and to what these vulture capitalists uh looks like you know constraining uh regulations which could get in their own way of you know turning a profit and says right go for them and then you've got i think you know a kind of not a liberal bias in uh, the country's institutions, but at least a kind of institutionalized sense of racism is bad. We don't really like it. You know, maybe trans people are human after all and saying, right, we're going to point you at that and, you know, get you really riled up and angry at that because one, it's a target that we also agree with, you know, deeply nationalist um, and an aggressive uh, authoritarian set of politics, but also a distraction from what's really going on. And that's why I find this wolf and, you know, the real working classes, you know, cheap's clothing just so interesting, the sheer dishonesty of it. When you look at those funders um, who've, you know, made their name in part by asset stripping whole states, you don't see them as tribunes of the left behind, those who have been screwed over by deindustrialization, managed decline, uh, people who are victims of this country's outrageous and runaway geographic inequalities. Um, you see people who are totally and 100% okay with the deepening of those inequalities just so long as no one you know wakes up notices them and starts voting for a redistributive party so i think this is also one of the things that the the left can get wrong is that it takes some of these attacks on identity politics at face value and says well, of course, identity politics are a cancer for the left. And, you know, we shouldn't go on about racism or we shouldn't go on about BLM or we shouldn't go on about trans rights because that's turning off the real working class who are instead all turning to GB News. No, this is all a mirage. It's a disguise. It's a way of concealing the real agenda here, which isn't the empowering of the working class in politics, but continuing to dispossess them all in the name of acting in their best interests. I want to move on to another clip, which is less significant than the ones we've talked about. Obviously, the big problems with GB News are the misinformation and the you know starting pointless culture wars, or at least you know inflaming them to distract from um, the the degradations of, of this country's actual ruling class. Um, but what many comments have focused on in the first twenty four hours of GB News existence is the technical problems. Um, so that goes from bad lighting to very dodgy sound. Now we're not going to dwell on this too much, but this clip is pretty funny. We love talking to you guys. We absolutely love it. So briefly, how's your first day? How's your first day, Paul? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that good. Anisha, are you having a good launch day? Yeah? <laughs> Oh. Got some sound issues. <laughs> oh. we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Long-time viewers of this show will know we've we've had a lot of technical difficulties on this show. You know, on one level, I feel sympathy when the sound doesn't work and you can't hear what someone's saying, or it goes to the wrong person. At the same time, we didn't receive sixty million pounds <laughs> in seed funding. We've always been funded by our subscribers. I can tell you it's never got close to 60 million pounds. However, you know, we, we, we appreciate your generosity. It hasn't got, that, hasn't got close to that yet. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael. Michael, you're being too nice. If we had 60 million 
of your British sterling? Do you think we would be having mics that don't work? Do you think we would be having echoey studio that sounds like, I don't know, you're like filming it in your mum's garage? Do you think you would have, like I was watching bits of it today, hosts not even looking at the right camera. <laughs> are you dizzy i want to know what this money was spent on because i swear to god if it wasn't cocaine and champagne i do not understand what is physically possible to spend your money on and still have a camera that cheap lighting that shit and you know sound quality which i, I swear to god it's like you know recording all your audio inside a wind turbine we sounded better when we were filming in the shipping container mm. 60 million quid, they can't even compare to Gary and Fox. What can I say? Um, right, if you want to be distracted from the depressingness of how our government get away with everything, you might like surveys. We are doing one. We mentioned this on Friday. But if you missed it then, we're currently running the Navarra Media 2021 survey. And we want to hear from you. We want to find out things like, what do you like about our content? What don't you like? and any ideas you have for the organization. So please do go to navara.media slash survey. You'll be taken through to it. That link is also below the description of this video. Apparently it takes about five minutes. I'm not allowed to fill it in myself because that would, you know, that, that could be biased, couldn't it? Um, so completely anonymous. I'm not gonna know what goes in there. You can be as rude about me as you like. Uh, next story. Keir Starmer's leadership so far has been a transparent attempt to appeal to older white voters by waving British flags. It doesn't seem to have worked. It also has caused some problems because Labour has refused to offer anything to anyone else. We've seen in YouGov polling that this myopic strategy has already led many young people to abandon the party. And new polling from Servation suggests he has just as serious a problem with Britain's Muslims. In a weighted poll of over 500 Muslim voters, um, Servation found that identification with the Labour Party remains high, but is falling. So to the question, which, if any, of the following political parties do you most identify with? 72% of Muslims said Labour, um, so incredibly high. That's down um, 11 points from 2019, um, but still you know, not huge cause for concern, although as I say, direction of travel is worrying. That changing relationship of some Muslims to the Labour Party is clearer in the following question. In the past 12 months, has your view of the Labour Party become more favourable or more unfavourable? Here, um, you can see 25% of people have said more favourable. 37% of people have said more unfavourable. So that's net 12%. So on, on the whole, um, Muslim Britons think Labour is going in the wrong direction. And most worrying for Keir Starmer when it comes to this poll is British Muslims' attitudes towards Keir Starmer himself. Now, Boris Johnson, very unpopular among Muslim voters. 20% of people think about him favourably, 53% unfavourably. So that's a net minus 33 He's not popular for obvious reasons. He compared Muslim women to letterboxes, all sorts of other um, unsavoury things in his past writings. Starmer, though, is not doing particularly well either. So 22% think about him favourably. That's only two points more than Boris Johnson, 29% unfavourably. Not as high as 53%, so Keir Starmer is on net minus seven. But that's not looking good for a Labour Party leader. As you can see, Labour polling way, way higher than Keir Starmer among Muslim 
voters. Now, you might say this is just a poll, it's speculative, we won't know what happens until an actual election. In fact, it seems that this is playing out on the ground right now, at least that's if you believe reports from Batley and Spen. Batley and Spen, obviously, the site of a by-election which will be happening on the 1st of July because the MP has now become the West Yorkshire Mayor. Um, it's a very, very high stakes by-election, a little bit like Hartlepool. Um, it's somewhere that voted Brexit and where Labour lost in, in vote share in 2019, essentially because they backed a second referendum. However, while Labour was trounced in Hartlepool, there were people suggesting that Batley and Spen would be a different story because Hartlepool's a very white place. Batley and Spen has larger populations of ethnic minorities, in particular Muslims, which is why this polling has come out at a very relevant moment. The particular worry for Labour in Batley and Spen is that whilst I assume their short-sighted strategists have said, well, um, we need to focus on the flags because it's the older white people who are going Tory and the young people and the Muslims have nowhere else to go. Someone landed in the constituency who's caused some problems for Keir Starmer. It's George Galloway. He's a former Labour and Respect MP. And he is explicitly positioning himself as the candidate to vote for if you're unhappy with Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party. You can see a poster here of Starmer out with him looking like he's ready to do some bare knuckle boxing. And he's also running as a as an advocate for Palestinian rights. He's saying, I'm uncompromising in my support of the Palestinians, contrasting himself with Keir Starmer. This apparently is being brought up repeatedly on the doorstep. This is a tweet from Patrick Maguire from The Times. Um, so he tweets, Labour sources say their last week on the doorstep has been dreadful. The issue is almost exclusively Palestine. On Friday evening, Galloway had been around 45 minutes before us in one of our stomping grounds. Nobody wanted to speak to us. Now, this is obviously um, worrying for the Labour Party. Keir Starmer has been very, very timid when it comes to basically any, any foreign policy issue, but Obviously, Palestine is particularly relevant now because of, of what's been happening, because of the bombardment of Gaza, because of the evictions, the expulsions, essentially, in, in Sheikh Jarrah, because of the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. All of these issues mean that people want to hear a loud advocate for Palestinian rights, especially people in the Muslim community, and they're not hearing that from the Labour Party. Now Labour are worried. Now, the fact this is causing electoral problems for Labour is a little bit ironic, given that we have seen so much bashing recently from centrists of the Labour left. And it all focuses on this idea that, of course, no one in their right mind, no voter cares about foreign policy. We don't know why Jeremy Corbyn, why the left always want Keir Starmer to talk about foreign policy, because no one, absolutely no one cares about it. This was Dan Hodges, one of the Mail on Sunday star columnists, um, in an article last month. He wrote... Red wall voters think Labour cares more about the Palestinians than them and their right. So we're saying that the reason Labour are losing the red wall is because they talk too much about Palestine. What's happened now? They're going to Batley and spend. They're worried they're going to lose it because Keir Starmer has not been vocal enough about Palestine. How wrong could Dan Hodges be? Now, a week earlier, um, former Labour MP Anna Turley had wrote a essentially a, a similar article. She argued... A party that waves the Palestinian flag from its conference floor but balks at the flag of its own country will never be able to convince people that it is interested in representing the voters of Hartlepool or fit to govern this country. Um, now, that 
Anatoly piece was published the day Israel began bombing Gaza. It was shared approvingly by, among others, David Miliband. That Dan Hodge's article, of course, was published in the middle of the bombardment of, of Gaza. That was his point. He said, why are Labour even commenting on this? Obviously, from our perspective, Labour were fairly weak on it. He said that the fact they even commented on it shows that they're not fit to win an election. It's all, I mean, just despicable, actually. It's, it's, it's disgusting. If they do want to stick to their guns on this, Anna Turley and Dan Hodges will now need to have a word with the people in charge of Labour's election literature because the party have responded to disquiet among the Muslim community in competition from George Galloway by making their election leaflets about Palestine, Kashmir and Islamophobia. You can see here a leaflet which is being han handed out in Batley. Um, the Kashmir reference there, you might remember last year, one of Starmer's first moves as leader was to say the constitutional status of Kashmir was up to India and Pakistan to resolve that reverse Labour's commitment to Kashmiri self-determination. He has since you turned. Um, Ash, I want your thoughts on this. I mean, in a way, it's like, is it funny? Is it tragic? I mean, it's definitely not funny. It's, but it, it, it does seem like these centrists, for just a month ago, for them to be saying, oh, why the hell would you talk about Palestine? This is ridiculous. This was everything that was wrong with Corbyn. And now Keir Starmer's Labour, with a candidate who's not from the left, by the way, handing out leaflets, which are now desperately saying, oh, these are what we think about Palestine. This is what we think about Kashmir. This is what we think about Islamophobia. Like it's, it's kind of pathetic and it's kind of desperate. Here's the thing about, you know, Anna Turley and Dan Hodges, is that as well as being, um, how, how can I put this kindly, idiots, as well as being idiots, they're also ideologues. So by using the red wall as a disciplinary tool against the left they're able to say look these things that you care about but i am ideologically opposed to i.e palestinian self-determination um you know a, a lively palestine solidarity movement in this country which holds israel to account you know, um, the bds movement these things which i'm ideologically opposed to it's not me saying this it's the red wall and we forget that the red wall is as diverse and as varied as anywhere else. So you don't have this complete hom homogeneity across different seats and within individual constituencies as well. You've got a you know, vast array of racial groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, voting behaviors, social views, um, but it becomes usefully um, you know, homogenized and presented as one thing by the right, precisely so it can, you know, use the left's own guilt for what happened in 2019 against the left and make sure that you never get too many ideas about, you know, shaping the foreign policy of, you know, the Labour Party ever again. And so I think that that's what's going on there. And that's why Palestine was being framed in that way. It's not because, you know, it stands up to even an iota of scrutiny. You've got very rich traditions of internationalism uh, and, you know, Palestine solidarity outside of London, not that you would ever know it by, you know, reading one of Dan Hodges's columns. Um, you've also got large Muslim communities who do feel very strongly about issues like Palestine and Kashmir. But it wasn't useful to acknowledge that. It was strategic to pretend that the only kind of voter in a red wall seat, whether that red wall seat is Hartlepool or Batley and Spen or, you know, whether it's Chesterfield or Derby, it's all populated by the same kind of person, which is an older white guy who loves pies, pints and the queen. And that's it. You know, so it's in its own way, deeply patronizing and very stereotypical. But I think as for this, um, you know, hemorrhaging of support for Keir Starmer amongst Britain's Muslims, you have to, I think, 
take a slightly more nuanced view. And so there are specific issues like Palestine, like Kashmir, where the Labour Party have been absolutely atrocious, either absent or, you know, doubling back on themselves and making U-turns all over the shop. But I think there's also something which I think is a lot more kind of nebulous a, a general vibe, which was that with Jeremy Corbyn, if you're a Muslim in this country, you knew that he was going to fight for you. You knew that he didn't look at you like you were all potential jihadis and you didn't really belong in this country. You got the sense that he wasn't embarrassed by you. He'd stand by you in your fights and would feel really at home doing so. With Keir Starmer, unfortunately, there I think is this aura that he and the team around him are embarrassed by their most loyal voter cohorts, whether that's people who live in cities, whether that's young people, or whether that's this country's ethnic minorities, in particular Muslims. And I think it's because Jeremy Corbyn was hauled over coals for, you know, a perceived proximity to Muslims, which made people tar him with the brush of terrorist sympathizer. You know, I always say Jeremy Corbyn was a victim of Islamophobia because, you know, he really was. We were used as, as a means to discredit and delegitimize his leadership. And I think instead of standing against that in a powerful and forthright way, Keir Starmer in many ways has, has kowtowed to it. And that's just plainly obvious you don't get the sense that he's going to fight alongside you take you seriously not be embarrassed by you the way Jeremy Corbyn was and I also think that there's you know something else going on here which is you know the kind of gestural politics right now George Galloway is in my opinion, a snake oil salesman. I don't think that he's somebody to be trusted. You look at what he was saying about that really wonderful anti-deportation action that took place in Glasgow. He was condemning it in the strongest possible terms. This is not somebody whose anti-racism is reliable. But in talking to Muslims the way that he does, I think something which he is exploiting is a sense amongst many ethnic minorities in this country, not just Muslims, that the way in which the Labour anti-Semitism crisis was portrayed in the media completely closed down the room to talk about your own experiences of racism. It was always treated as a secondary issue to the primary one, which was Labour anti-Semitism. And then you had that insulting refrain, which I've had said to my face multiple times, which is, Ash, you know, no other minority would have been treated this way. And you've got Britain's Muslims who are, you know, subject to prevent, subject to surveillance, are vilified from pillar to post in pretty much every tabloid newspaper in this country going, eh? What do you mean no other minority? Like we've been here this whole time. And when you've got that deliberate, I think, insult to the Muslim experience coming from the press, and when it's something which I think implicitly has been reinforced through Keir Starmer's orientation as Labour leader, it does leave space for somebody like George Galloway to come along with this very shallow gestural politics of recognition and go see you know I'm here for you and that's probably not going to win George Galloway the seat but it might peel off enough voters or you know demoralize enough of Labour's Muslim voters that the Tories sneak through in Batley and Spen and again it's a crisis of Keir Starmer's making it's through his own uh, poor strategy and lack of foresight that he's left himself open to being outflanked on his left.
clearly Labour are worried about George Galloway now. They've very belatedly woken up to the fact that actually if you treat people like they're an embarrassment, they're probably not going to want to vote for you. I mean, it's actually, you know, obviously this is more serious because it involves issues of, of, of racism, but it's a similar thing that he did with with young people and left-wingers. He says, the fact that you support me, that's embarrassing. I, I don't really want people to know that you guys vote for me. It's a similar thing with Muslims. Sort of like, yeah, you guys, can you vote for me, but let's not talk about it very much. People don't like that, which is why George Galloway is probably going to do pretty well in that constituency. Obviously, we'll be talking more about this by-election before the 1st of July. Thank you, as ever, for watching Tiski Sour. We really do appreciate it if you consider supporting the organisation. If you were already a Navarra Media supporter, thank you so much. If not, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support and donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. For now, you've been watching Tiski Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.